It is my honour on behalf of the Atlantic Institute team to welcome you all. Today's new senior fellows who join not only your local senior fellow community, but also the global community of fellows. We would also like to acknowledge the small group of senior fellows from last year's cohorts who were part of the co-design group for the convening held in Oxford. We'd like to acknowledge the Atlantic Fellows Programme staff, the executive directors and your teams, senior fellow programme leads. Welcome everyone. It's now my huge honour and pleasure to introduce you to Tanya Charles, the Programme and Impact Lead Senior Fellow Engagement at Atlantic Institute. We're incredibly proud of the leadership of this young woman. She is a Senior Fellow from the LSE Programme, and I'll hand it over to you, Tanya. Thank you. Thank you so much, Evie, for that warm introduction. Hello, everybody. Salibonani, Linjani. In my language, that's how we greet. In Shona, Makaliko means, how are you? So I'd like to welcome everybody to our keynote session on resistance, reclamation, and reconstruction, overcoming global systemic racism. As you all very well know, 2020 has been characterized by heightened conversations about racialized forms of oppression, discrimination, and vulnerability as a result of the racially disproportionate infection and death rates related to the coronavirus, as well as systemic violence against Black, Brown, and Indigenous peoples across the world. Beyond the discussions, however, there have been incredible acts of solidarity, both globally and locally, which have fostered actions to address historical injustices in many institutions and spaces, as well as to challenge enduring social and economic inequalities that render some groups more vulnerable than others. This keynote panel now seeks to explore the ways in which different actors have really addressed the status quo to reclaim Indigenous knowledge and practices, reconstruct society in such a way that it gives shape to a more just and equal world. It is my extreme pleasure now to welcome our keynote speakers from different parts of the world who are going to help us unpack this very topical conversation at the moment. Our first keynote is Sisonke Nsimang. Some of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with Sisonke. She's the author of Always Another Country, a memoir of exile and home. She's a South African writer whose work is focused on race, gender, and democracy, and she's written for a range of international publications, the New York Times, the Washington Post. She has a very, very popular TED Talk, If a Story Moves, You Act on It, which has almost 1.5 million views. She's a longtime friend and colleague, and I'm thrilled that she is opening this conversation with her own reflections on the topic Sisonke, it's lovely to see you again. I know it's the wee hours of the morning for you, so we are honoured. Thank you. Over to you to share your opening remarks on race and the global systemic oppression. Thank you. Hi, everyone. You will forgive me my sleepy eyes. It's midnight here in Perth, Western Australia. I wanted to begin, as we always begin our conversations here where I live, by acknowledging that I live on Noongar Buja, in territory whose sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. 
So these are three really big words that we've been asked to speak about and think about today together. And I really am grateful for the opportunity to talk to so many of you whose work I really admire and so many of you who I know. So it was fantastic to realize that there are people with whom I have a community and spiritual and intellectual kinship. So it's wonderful to feel as though I'm amongst friends in that way. So three big words, resistance, reclamation, and reconstruction. I just want to pick on one to reflect on, because I think each of them is large and each of them is incredibly important. But for me, I think the beginning of both reclamation and reconstruction lie in resistance. And so that's the one I really want to talk about. And of course, we're in a real moment of resistance right now. So I want to start by telling you a little story about my own father, who left South Africa when he was just a young man. He was 19 when he crossed the border into exile to join Nelson Mandela's revolutionary army, Mkonto Esizwe, Spear of the Nation. He traveled to Russia, to Moscow, where he learned how to use a gun. In many ways, he did that because the apartheid state had proven that it wasn't interested in nonviolence. And so a new generation of then young people, under the guidance of Nelson Mandela, took up arms. The strategy was to avoid bloodshed, but of course to be prepared to fight if necessary. They mainly hoped that they would be able to get away with blowing up key infrastructure sites like electricity pylons and railways, rather than actually harming people. The intention was to destabilize the apartheid regime and to take over the state so that the black majority could rule. They thought that they would be home within 12 months. And of course, shortly after they crossed the border and went into Botswana and then made their way across to what was then the USSR, Mandela and his comrades were arrested and they were sent to Robben Island. So instead of the year they anticipated being gone, my father and his comrades spent 30 years trying to make their way back home. So he was 19 when he left and he was 53 when he came back home. And of course, in the interim, my sisters and I were born. And in those 30 years, they learned a lot about resistance. They learned mainly that their enemy was far more violent and more callous than they ever could be. And they also learned that there's no point in resistance if the only thing that is guaranteed is that you will be obliterated as a group. So none of them had a problem dying for their cause, but the point of black resistance has always been to advance black life, indeed to advance life. Black people have fought to live. And I think, and I think they believed that black life is too precious to waste and too important to throw away without first thinking about ways of surviving. So their resistance was brave and strategic. And they decided then to invest in a movement They didn't exactly put their gun down, but they picked up a number of other tools. They chose an icon, Nelson Mandela, and they created a persona for him. That Mandela that the world fell in love with and believed in was in part a creation. They decided that there ought to be one symbol. They ran a global sanctions campaign. They ran sports boycotts. They inspired concerts so that rock stars could embed anti-apartheid messages into their songs of liberation. And so resistance became an act of reclamation. Resistance was, in fact, black joy. I grew up in a house full of black people who were resisting white supremacy and in the process were joyful. And I say that because, of course, we are living right now in a moment in which black death is almost a fetish, in which black death is the cause for our resistance. And it is difficult sometimes to keep sight of the fact that what we are wanting to create is a world in which black people are able to demonstrate fully their joy. So it's important, I think, when we think about resistance, to also think about resistance as being a push for life. 
So like all of you, I think at this moment who are living through this time, I have been feeling this strange blend of exhaustion and cautious optimism. And like many of you, I think I have cynically rolled my eyes a little bit at all the book lists and the social media performativity that seems to be coming out of this moment. Even, of course, as I have participated in some of it myself because of the sheer force and weight of digital life and what it exerts upon us all. But in trying to resist white supremacy and the ways in which it operates today, I've also been thinking a lot about what an activist toolkit for these times looks like in terms of a mental toolkit, right? And I think there are lots of big words that are deployed these days. For those of us who have been working on questions of racial justice for many, many years, it's wonderful and interesting that there's suddenly this plethora of intellectual tools that are now available and all these big words about unconscious bias and implicit bias and anti-racism. There's this whole new lexicon that has emerged. And I think these words are important because the intellectual work that is required to dismantle white supremacy should not be underestimated. But I'm also drawn to ideas about what it is that those of us who want to tear down white supremacy, to resist and to reclaim and reconstruct, what we might need to do. And so I've come up with a very short list of three things. It's a kind of random list for random times. So the first one is that every activist, I think, every person who is concerned about racial justice and wants to do something about it, must drink water. And if you can't drink water in your community safely from a tap, then I think you ought to consider how this affects your possibilities for fighting for justice. In other words, racial justice is holistic justice. It's water justice. It's climate justice. So when I say drink water, I am using this, of course, as a metaphor for connecting with social movements that are aimed at dignity, that are aimed at health, that are aimed at justice in ways that don't always seems so obvious. So people who work in Flint, Michigan would understand this well, and people who have been working all over my own continent for many years who are helping communities to dig wells understand very well the connection and the relationship between being able to drink a glass of water and being able to fight for a set of other rights around discrimination and dignity. The second thing that I would suggest is in this random toolkit is for us to think about sitting down more often than we stand up. I think the language of activism is very much about standing up. And I think that stuff is really important. But in my culture, and I think in many cultures around the world, when you are invited to sit with someone, you're being asked to come and listen and to deliberate together, to engage deeply. So standing is necessary, but I think we need to honor what activism looks like when we sit with one another, with older people, with young ones, with peers, when we sit not rushing, but making decisions based on knowing one another, seeing one another truly, and for caring about one another's well-being. And that's only possible when you sit together. The third one is about seeking to transform power while never trusting it. I think a lot of the time when we talk about systemic racism, it's easy to think about working towards a world in which institutions have been transformed so fundamentally and so thoroughly that they are kind institutions, that they are gentle institutions. And I think this is a mistake. I'm so deeply skeptical about institutions and I'm becoming more skeptical about them the older I get. As a South African who lived through the era of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I know very well that even when institutions have the best of intentions, when they are set up, for example, to dismantle the legacy of apartheid, they can operate in powerful ways that help to elevate a narrative of forgiveness over a narrative of justice. 
So what does that mean when even the best institution doesn't deliver us justice, even when it doesn't mean to? In South Africa, we focused on individual rights, even though apartheid in its entirety had been declared a crime against humanity, the TRC chose to look at individual perpetrators and assess individual claims of people whose loved ones had been killed or abducted. And that was very, very important. But it meant that for Black people who had lived through apartheid and been forced to carry a pass, or who had worked as a domestic worker with little pay and little respect, after the end of apartheid, there was no apology for that. So if someone had been killed, you got an apology. But if you had simply been wounded by the fact of having been Black and lived through apartheid, there was no apology and no framework for understanding what that meant for Black people as a collective. So there's an example of an institution that wounds us even as it is set up to heal us. So I don't trust institutions. And that's not to diminish the fantastic and wonderful work that the TRC did. So it seems counterintuitive, but I think that even when they're ostensibly good, we can't trust institutions because they set the frame and they limit what we're allowed to see. And so even as we fight to end systemic racism, I think we cannot afford to trust the systems that we are transforming. Vigilance, right? Frederick Douglass tells us power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. And that remains as true today as it was when he said it. So holding all of these contradictions in our head, these three ideas of things that don't seem to fit together, but I feel like fit together very well at this moment in time, holding all these contradictions in our heads and in our hearts, I think it's more important than it has ever been. Because I think this is a really powerful moment, but we have to resist its seductions, even as we claim everything that it hopes to give us. Wonderful. Resonant. Thank you so much. So much to pick from this, Sisonke. And I think we've come to the end of a rainbow in the sense that we're in a moment where there's a lot of distrust of government in terms of its response to COVID, of the NGO sector as well. There's a close examination. And I think it's because, as you pointed out, the system itself that brings about racism is the very same system that tries to solve it. And so we have to hold that distrust always in place. And I think that's a powerful call to pay attention to that. We move on to our second keynote, who is Lone Tran. Lone is a queer bilingual writer and organizer based in Durham, North Carolina. Lone has worked on issues of migrant justice, LGBTQ liberation, economic and racial justice, and for an end to all interpersonal violence. Lone was a featured speaker at the historic thousands on John Street, Moral March, and has had their writing and commentary featured on Black Girl Dangerous, Waging Nonviolence, The New York Times, and many, many other publications. Currently, they serve as the co-executive director at the Southern Vision Alliance, a justice-centered, values-based grassroots intermediary organized to provide incubation, infrastructure, capacity building, coaching, and technical assistance to frontline organizing projects, as well as leadership programs and collaborations led by directly impacted communities in the U.S. South. Lone, we are so excited to hear your reflections today, and we'd like to welcome you into the space. Over to you. Thank you, Tanya, and thank you for having me join y'all today. 
I am saying hello from Durham, North Carolina in the U.S. South, also known as the Okanichi Ban of the Saponi Nation. I'm specifically on Eno land. And a lot of this will be centered around my experience here in North Carolina, which I'm sure will be very specific, but I hope that there are some general pieces that are useful to all of you. I've been marinating a lot on the phrase unprecedented times, which has been in my inbox from every politician, corporation, social justice, NGO, government official for quite some time now. And I've been wrestling with that a lot. And so I want to invite you all into that space with me. So the making of unprecedented times. In 2010, North Carolina faced one of the most intense attacks on democracy and right-wing takeovers in recent history. At every level, from school boards to city councils and county commissions, up to the General Assembly itself, the decades-long strategy of anti-people, pro-profit, millionaires, and politics took root. Working-class people and communities of color were witnessing the gutting of basic social safety nets and graver threats to democracy. The public space continued to shrink while migrants, women, Poor people, Black people, and LGBTQ people became scapegoats for a cruel and upended economic, social, and political system. What can we say has changed in 10 years' time? For social movements across the U.S. and around the globe, neo-fascist and authoritarian regimes seem to have only gained momentum. The rich continue to get rich while the poor continue to be poor. And it almost goes without saying the planet only continues to suffer. If you told me in 2019 that the stock market would crash and the government would move swiftly to bail out corporations while giving breadcrumbs to our people, I would believe you. If you told me in 2019 that videos of police murdering black people in cold blood would emerge and go viral, I would believe you. If you told me in 2019 that communities of color would die at higher rates from a public health crisis because of lack of access to health care, I would believe you. If you told me in 2019 that the U.S. would assassinate a political leader in Iran as an act of aggression, I would believe you. If you told me in 2019 that climate disasters of epic proportions would be met with underwhelming responses from our political leaders, I would believe you. If you told me in 2019 or in 2015 that the governing class would tell us that this is the most important election in our lifetime, I would believe you. Can we really say that these are unprecedented times? In 2012, a party of young people organized on Wall Street South to confront the Democratic National Convention in Charlotte, North Carolina with simple demands. Money and power for working people and less money in bailouts for banks, corporations, and jails. Our lead banner read, money for jobs and education, not for war and incarceration. In 2014, after a student in Durham, North Carolina was murdered in the back of a police car, The demands were likewise simple, accountability for police and money for public services. In 2016, after Keith Lamont Scott was murdered in Charlotte, North Carolina by the police and an uprising filled the streets, the demands were also simple, justice for the families and community control over police. In 2017, when we tore down a monument to white supremacy in Durham, North Carolina, the demands then too were simple, tear down all of the living monuments to white supremacy personified through the prisons and police departments. Can we really say that these are unprecedented times? Perhaps a more fitting characteristic of this political moment is that the pain, suffering, death, and trauma our communities experience have broken the levees and the dams. 
have pierced through the veil that never really hid the conditions facing working class people all that well to begin with. The streets are wet, not just with blood and tears, they are flooded with centuries of oppression. We no longer need a window to look through to understand what is happening all around us. Here, this is the full picture. This is reality. This is what the world as it has always been for so many. But perhaps what Arundhati Roy says about the pandemic as a portal should offer an optimistic and guiding light for all of us in the work of justice. We are in the periods of weeks as decades where it seems that with each passing day, there are new openings we could have never imagined for our communities and for our social movements. This reality is nothing short of exhilarating and terrifying. Is it possible that we are that much closer to freedom for our people on the planet? Is it possible that we are that much closer to a world where living free from fear, poverty, homelessness, or hunger is not only a given, but just the beginning? Is it possible that we are that much closer to the something more we believe to be true about life? Yes, it is possible, but it is not automatic and our winning should not be assumed. If it wasn't clear to us before, it should be in full view now for us that it takes the willing participation of millions born of their own pain, dreams, and heart to contend for and transform power. It takes not just a swelling of consciousness, but the molding of that consciousness into action. It takes organization of all kinds and sizes to do the lift of changing the world. And if the question is, what is the way forward? I believe here are some of the priorities for us to consider as justice workers. Stay the course. We may be pulled to start new things, to rebrand our movements, to cast this particular moment in history as unique and freestanding from the past. Realistically, not much has changed for good and for worse. What is true is that capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy are constantly reconfiguring and reconstituting as to confuse and distract us from our primary objectives. Our social movements must develop the political clarity and wherewithal to do the same in order to not accept minor concessions from major corporations and elected officials as victories. Imagine what is better than a corporation like McDonald's saying Black Lives Matter or offering free meals to frontline workers. It would be simple. Pay your workers a livable wage, plus benefits, and allow for full unionization. Secondly, I believe that solidarity is the strategy. It is a classic play for those in power and of the governing class to find weak points and divisions across our communities. Where we have genuine difference, we must be willing to address, understand, embrace, and when possible, resolve them. Where we have genuine unity, we must be ready to turn that unity into shared action and collective struggle. If the pandemic and the crisis of capitalism and white supremacy has taught us anything, it is that the working people of the world, the historically oppressed of the world, those of us who are down and out, who live with tremendous despair but are strong of will, of integrity, and of conviction, not only have more in common but have more power than the few who currently determine the world order. And lastly, we have to fight for all of it and then some. It is true that our social movements have been raising a very similar set of demands for a very long time. Sometimes the point may seem moot, the demands only platitudes, but here's the opening where the things we thought were once the ceiling are now the floor. So how do we lead our communities to fight for all of it and then some more? Why end with a moratorium on evictions if we can actually guarantee housing for all? Why just provide all students with laptops to do distance learning when we can also support families with universal childcare? Why ban police chokeholds when we could abolish police and legitimize the wisdom of our own communities to reduce harm and transform conflict? 
Why should we settle for less when we could birth the future we know we deserve and are entitled to? Why fight if not with the audacity to believe that there is something more to life than this? Social movements and the awakening of masses of people to the injustice and cruelty of our current reality is not unprecedented. But if we truly want to see unprecedented times, let's not just fight for our right to live without the fear of dying from racism or health disparities. Let's fight for a life full of dignity, a life that has the ability to meet the infinite blossoming of human possibility. Thank you. Powerful words, Lon. Thank you for sharing a really remarkable tapestry of efforts and approaches and ways of analyzing and looking at the moment we're in and to remind us that we really are not in unprecedented times and that, as Sisonke said, it's about not trusting the system. Thank you so much, Lon, for those words. I'd like to welcome now our third and final keynote. It is my privilege to introduce one of our very own Atlantic Fellows, Rukia Lumumba. Rukia completed the Atlantic Fellowship for Racial Equity program a few years ago. She's a legal professional, transformative justice strategist, and daughter of the late Mayor Chokwe Lumumba and Nubia Lumumba. Rukia is Executive Director of the People's Advocacy Institute, as well as the Co-Director of the Electoral Justice Project of the Movement for Black Lives. She's also Campaign Manager of the Committee to Elect Chokwe Ante Lumumba for Mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Lumumba works at the intersections of criminal and electoral justice, defending the human rights of those behind prison walls engaging communities in community-led governance efforts, people's assemblies, and alternatives to incarceration initiatives, as well as an intentional grassroots process for cultivating ideas and developing solutions to crime, punitive legal systems, and social injustice facing far too many communities. Rukia, thank you so much for bringing your voice and your experience to this topic. Over to you such an honor to be here, to be back. So thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. I'm really inspired by the panelists today. Really appreciate the work that you are doing and how you continue to be a guide and a lead as we move forward in this work to create really a better world, regardless of that sounding real flowery. It's real. We do this work every day because we have to create better conditions. I'm in Jackson, Mississippi right now, where I was raised. I returned home about six years ago to continue the work here as children, as descendants, as offspring of Africans that were literally kidnapped and forced to this country, one of the things that we were always taught and continue to do is recognize our ancestors, those that came before us and how they guided us through this process. And so I first want to lift up some of those names that recently passed that a lot of folks may not know. Of course, we have Representative John Lewis, civil rights veteran, who spent his whole life defending the lives of Black people. You have Emma Sanders and C.T. Vivian. Emma Sanders is a Mississippian, herself one of the first freedom writers and one of the youngest freedom writers as a teenager, was one of those children that was locked in animal cages in our Mississippi state fairgrounds for protesting with other animals. And then we have C.T. Vivian, who became one of our greatest pastors, but also was at the side of Martin Luther King throughout all of that. It's important to mention those names that don't have as much of a notoriety, because without all of us, we would have no ability to actually fight and win. And so I lift them up. 
My comrade, Jessica Bird, who is a co-creator of the Electoral Justice Project of the Movement for Black Lives, she says, national standards mean that there is a baseline of defending Black lives. But we're not just asking for the floor, we're asking for the ceiling. To defend Black life means that no one person is killed senselessly by their government or a city official. It is not enough to say we shouldn't be murdered. Murder is already illegal in this country. What we want is for people to say we defend Black life because we want to celebrate you in the living. I lift that because that is the context upon which I want to speak today. I'm going to talk primarily about Black life because my work centers Black life. It centers uh, moving towards creating a better reality for Black people because it is my belief, it is my teaching, it is my understanding, and it is my experience that when we lift the lives of the work and needs of Black people, literally we're lifting the work and needs of all people. We see that. We recognize our solidarity, allyship, and work with indigenous communities all across the world, and especially in the United States where we are. And we know that when we fight together, we win, and that we create the world that we want to see. So in the past several months, we've seen an unprecedented global uprising in defense of Black life, reacting to the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McKay, Nina Pop, Ricky Ball, and countless others killed by police or dying in prisons due to torture and inhumane living conditions in notorious prisons like Parchment Penitentiary in Mississippi or Angola Prison in Louisiana. The uprisings have galvanized real change across the country from Mississippi to Baltimore to Mount Rushmore. We've seen the tearing down of statues erected to slavers, brutal colonizers, and other white supremacists to a successful movement towards defunding the police, taking hold from California to Colorado to Minnesota to Texas. The problem is that our communities have been denied the right to our full humanity in this country from the beginning. Our black bodies have been subjected to violence, police violence, state neglect, inadequate healthcare, inadequate housing, toxic living conditions, mass incarceration, and the theft of Black-owned land. As a consequence of this violence, and as Black people, we are constantly making the case against racism. Yet, we are still suffering under white supremacy and white-inflicted terror. Our protests are necessary and have allowed us to see some policy shifts. We have seen some movement, but it is time to increase our efforts because we still lack control of the political processes that govern our lives and thus the resources to support a good quality of life. Megger Evers and Fannie Lou Hamer taught us that being denied the right to fully engage in the political process is part and parcel of being denied political power. To that end, the Electoral Justice Project of the Movement for Black Lives, we are hosting what we're calling the Black National Convention. The Black National Convention is gonna be our effort to build a national Black agenda to accompany our protests in the streets so that we may build power and policy in defense of Black lives. So we're going to mobilize hundreds of Black leaders to ratify a liberation platform, which will arm Black people with the tools to confront electoral officials with our coordinated demands to advance the mission 
and vision of policies, programs, and investments that literally defend Black lives and create a clear and accurate list of which lawmakers are in defense of Black life. We understand that it is no longer the case of the ballot or the bullet. We understand that our uprisings and our vote are critical to our liberation. We are using all of our tools in our arsenal for our freedom, a freedom from state and police violence, the freedom to earn a livelihood and to live a healthy, fully realized life. This convention will bring together the collective strength because we understand that it is important to bring together the collective strength of our uprisings and the power in our political action to make our dreams of freedom a reality. We honor the legacies of the freedom fighters who came before us to realize a collective vision of Black liberation. We take inspiration and guidance from the 1972 Black National Political Convention held in Gary, Indiana. We know that we will meet this historic moment with a national convention to shape a Black agenda ahead of the 2020 elections when Black voters will play a pivotal role. The 1972 convention taught us the lessons of unity without conformity that still resonates today. From our elders and our ancestors, we learned it is possible to bring Black people from all political ideologies and backgrounds together to mobilize around a common vision for Black liberation. So we are building on the history of Black power building and the righteous anger and momentum in the streets to build power that will extend to the November elections and beyond. But our efforts aren't just about creating an opportunity to build a Black agenda. We will also create a space for Black people to exercise our political power. It will be an example and continued push for a return of power to the people, ordinary residents, and the most vulnerable of our community members, non-citizens, immigrants, our people barred from the political process because of mass incarceration, and those harmed by economic violence. Through this convention, we will continue to reinvent what it means to do politics. We know that true politics begins at the base in local communities. It is transparent and collective. It is not just about bringing a progressive Black agenda to the White House, to Capitol Hill, or your local city halls, important as that might be. It is important that we create spaces that provide us with the opportunity to return politics to its original definition, a moral calling based on community, rationality, and the solutions derived from those of us most harmed by inequity. And so we will create an opportunity to engage in rich democracy and show what a rich democracy should be. A democracy in which people act together to chart a rational future at a time when human rights, democracy, and the public good are under attack by increasingly nationalistic, authoritarian, centralized governments. We hope that our efforts will allow us to reclaim the public sphere for the exercise of authentic democracy to build power and policy in defense of Black lives. So we are moving with power, with pride and love to create spaces and opportunities for all Black people to get involved as agents of change to ensure we are not only surviving, but we are thriving. When we say Black lives, that means everybody. We want all Black people to thrive. Black people of every gender expression, sexual orientation, ability, ethnic background, class, origin, country of birth, region, or religion are included. Everyone in, nobody out. We center a queer and trans Black feminist perspective 
that uplifts all of the ways we care for each other and come together to vision and shape our families and our futures. We are motivated by joy, electoral justice, and abolition, and we are fighting for all Black lives, including but not limited to those who are women, queer, trans, femmes, gender non-conforming, Muslim, formerly and currently incarcerated, cash poor, working class, disabled, undocumented, and immigrant. And y'all, we are winning. We are coming off the heels of a landmark Juneteenth weekend of action with more than 650 actions nationwide and millions of people engaging all over the world. While we observe the 400th year since the first Africans were enslaved on North American soil, and in a year where COVID-19 has claimed the lives of tens of thousands of Black people, we need to be together. We deserve it. It requires us to move forward our vision of Black liberation. We know and deeply understand that our struggle and our wins must be local as well as global. We believe in global Black liberation and the importance of allyship with indigenous and progressive-minded peoples from across the world. And so as we win everywhere, let us remember that we win together. Many of us need to begin to recognize and utilize the duality of our existence and our organizing. We have to be in the streets, we have to be in the classroom, and we have to be in government office. It's time for us to take control of all of the ways that we are impacted and all of the ways that we can win. Thank y'all so much. Thank you so, so much, Rukia. Really powerful tracing of Black leadership and activism in the U.S., but also hearkening back to the slavery movement and where we are contemporarily as we all fight for Black life in our different ways and from our different geographies. And really an important reminder that all Black life should matter as we move forward. It's really been quite a critical conversation among Black communities about the othering of queer and people of different genders and sexualities in our movement and the importance of remembering that all Black life matters. It's an incredible moment and we are really privileged to bear witness to that. So thank you. We honor the work that you're doing. I'd like to hand over now to Natasha Forrest, Associate ED of Operations and Organizational Development, to give our final closing remarks. Thank you, Tanya, for your wonderful facilitation. And thank you to everyone. It's my honour to close this welcome ceremony on behalf of the Atlantic Institute. Thank you for the inspiring insights from our fantastic panel. Today, we have heard from those within and on the edges of our growing community, people so very different to us and yet so like us, dedicated to working for equity with humility and love. We've woven together a collective story of shifting powers and possibilities. If a story moves us, together we can act on it. Together we can enact transformative justice. We can harness this moment to resist the status quo, reclaim indigenous knowledges and practices, and reconstruct society. Together, through making good trouble, we can give shape to a more just and equal world. Your invitation now is to maintain the contact that's been initiated today. We invite you to bring your whole self into this global fellowship. Continue to lean in, lift up together in solidarity. Continue to seek to understand and reach across difference, to learn, collaborate and act. Finally, welcome to a community of resistance. Resistance as a push for life and a community of resonance. To a catalytic community that takes a stand, 
and also sits together and gets to know one another. That's grounded in radical inclusion and dedicated to transformation of structural injustices. A community that is driven by love and the infinite blossoming of human potential. Welcome to the Atlantic Fellows Global Community. We can't wait to see you again. Oh, no.